just a quick note before we start this week. This is part one of a two-part episode on the animated adaptations of J.R.R. Tolkien's works. We had originally intended to release this as a single episode, but we had a lot more to say. So if this seems to end abruptly, that's why. The second part will pick up right where this one leaves off. Without further ado, here we go. I am small. I kill what I wish. I am strong. 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 My armor is like tenfold shields. My teeth are like swords. My claws, spears, the shock of my tail, a thunderbolt, and my wings, a hurricane. And my breath, death. I have been going through a meatloaf phase recently. I was helping a friend move this weekend and just listened to so much meatloaf. And then this morning I had to drive an hour one way and an hour back. I've left my credit card at a restaurant. So I'm coming to this podcast full of effervescent meatloaf energy, like a bat out of hell. So 1977 was a fantastic year for everything pretty much because you know star wars came out roos was released that was when basically the world was introduced to lavar burton everybody should watch that film especially if you're an american you need to watch it gosh darn it jimmy carter became president we had the blizzard of 77 the personal computer was born and people started buying them but let's be honest it was just rich people because it was expensive at that time. <laughs> that was also the year Chuck E. Cheese opened. Yay! Introducing children to the Las Vegas Starter Pack. <laughs> <laughs> Studio 54 opened that year, and uh, Led Zeppelin also set a new world record for indoor solo attraction at the Pontiac Silverdome. There were so many interesting things that happened that year. Elvis had his last concert. It was held at Market Square Arena. Hulk Hogan made his debut <laughs> in a high school wrestling match. Um, do, 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 and there were some more things. Oh, here's one that's relevant to uh, Eric Tragedy and I. That was also when the Sex, sex Pistols. I knew what you were going to say before you said it. <laughs> I knew as soon as you said it, I knew it was coming. <laughs> Much to the dismay of many retailers in the United Kingdom, they broke record sales. And there were plenty of record stores that refused to sell it because the name of the album was Nevermind the Bullocks. I mean, okay. You know, of course. Saturday Night Fever, they released their soundtrack, and then later the movie was released, which set the tone for 1978, which we'll talk about later. And let's see, the Oscars were basically dominated by movies Network, The President's Men, and Rocky. Good year for movies. 
definitely a good year for movies. The 70s are definitely the second golden age when it comes to cinema. Oh, um, I know. I know. Speaking of good movies, I was thrilled to learn a little bit more trivia about Rankin and Bass as a child devoted to their Christmas specials, both the claymation and some of their animated works like Twas the Night Before Christmas, another delightful animated musical piece also animated by Topcraft. Of course, Rankin and Bass and Topcraft's most famous collaboration is one of my all-time favorite films, The Last Unicorn, with the soundtrack by America. I hope we will revisit The Last Unicorn sometime in the future. There will be repeated references to this film throughout my production notes for this and the later animated pieces. But to give a timeline of where Rankin and Bass was in their career at the time that they made The Hobbit in 1977, Rudolph was made in 1964, and Jack Frost, their last Christmas special, was made in 1979. So The Hobbit lands kind of squarely in the middle of their Christmas spectaculars, <laughs> which is one reason perhaps they were able to broker this deal with NBC for the TV special version of The Hobbit. This collaboration between Rankin and Bass and Topcraft was actually at the tail end of Topcraft's career, and shortly afterwards, they dissolved and split apart, and one faction of Topcraft became Studio Ghibli, which was the studio responsible for most of Miyazaki's films and is now handled by G-Kids. So if you were watching The Hobbit and you were noticing a sort of anime vibe, it's not your imagination, it's Topcraft and their masterful animation skills. The Hobbit cost approximately $3 million to make. We don't have grosses to compare because it was released on television, but it was a success, even though there was some criticism. A lot of the success was due to the amazing soundtrack and the songs sung by Glenn Yarbrough, who I confess I didn't really know anything about except for his work on The Hobbit and The Return of the King. But he was a real interesting dude. He's quoted as saying, the only thing success has taught me is that success is meaningless. This from a man who sold his Rolls Royce, Porsche, Bentley, and two Ferraris and his house in New Zealand, his banana plantation in Jamaica, and an apartment building he owned in Beverly Hills to start a school for disadvantaged kids in LA. So Glenn Yarbrough, like real hippie living the hippie lifestyle and all of those values. There is a reason I call this the hippie hobbit. <laughs> so Glenn Yarbrough had actually retired from the music business. He had been a very famous folk singer and the lead of a band called the Limelighters and apparently a super millionaire. But he had retired with his wife three out of four to go live on a boat and sail the high seas. And that's what he was up to before coming back to record the soundtrack for The Hobbit. Other little bit of song-related trivia with this film, Thurl Ravenscroft <laughs> sings the, the goblin parts of the songs. So any of you who are a fan of the title song from the original animated version of The Grinch, that's Thurl Ravenscroft. Also, they're great. Oh. Of Frosted Flakes fame. Only other note is some awards. Romeo Muller, who was the 
teleplay writer for this film, also was a collaborator on Rudolph and the other Christmas specials. He won a Peabody Award for his teleplay for The Hobbit. And the film was also nominated for the Hugo Award for Best Dramatic Presentation, but lost to Star Wars. To truly appreciate this, I think you got to watch a VHS copy because all of the restorations that were put out on DVD and Blu-ray and a lot of the streaming services, for whatever reason, did not incorporate the same audio mix. They dropped out all the Foley sounds and stuff like that during the songs. But the audio mix on the original is masterful. It's really one of the best things about this animation because you don't get good audio mixes on a lot of animation. A lot of animation is really static chunks of dialogue and it isn't really cut together very well. This is. I have said before on this podcast, or I will say, may not have aired the episode by now, that I was a huge fan of Star Wars and had the LPs and listened to them over and over and over again. I was also a huge fan of the hobbit and had the box set it was more than one i don't remember how many record albums and i listened to it over and over and over again and it's pretty much a straight vinyl version of this film to the point where decades later not having seen this i was able to recite every line from this film while watching it i knew it as well as i know the rocky horror picture show i mean i was there (laughs) on meatloaf see see how it all comes together all right it's all connected Um, what are we having for dinner meatloaf (laughs) (laughs) maybe we'll do that movie someday we really need to okay Okay. let's just tell let's just put it out there we need to do that someday it's going to happen in the future at some point yeah I, i knew every line john houston's gandalf as the narrator in a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit I mean, nothing tops Sir Ian McKellen's performance as Gandalf, but I gotta say, John Huston is close. Enough. I am Gandalf. John Huston was at a very interesting point of his career at the time that he participated in The Hobbit and The Return of the King. John Huston, of course, wrote screenplays for most of the 37 films he directed, many of which are considered all-time classics today, like The Maltese Falcon, The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, The Asphalt Jungle, African Queen, and The Man Who Would Be King in 1975, which Spielberg incidentally cites as an inspiration for Raiders of the Lost Ark. John Huston was also cast as the villain in Roman Polanski's Chinatown in 1974, But then after this period, he kind of took a break from directing and from starring in major films to work on Orson Welles' unfinished film, The Other Side of the Wind, which was an on and off project that took decades and finally was released by Netflix in 2018. John Huston is incredible in this film, even though the film is still an inexplicable sensory wonder and storytelling mess at the same time. Shooting began for that in 1970 and was on and off until 1976. And then John Huston did The Hobbit in 1977 during this weird break. One member of the cast I got to point out because nobody ever talks about him is Brother Theodore. 
You guys know who Brother Theodore is? Anyone? Does he play Gollum? He's a comedian or something. He was. Okay, do yourself a favor and Google him sometime with Late Night with David Letterman. If you've ever lived in a college town, there's always that weird, brainy, eccentric professor that still goes to the college parties that all the college kids have and likes usually standing in the corner sipping uh, a glass of wine, you know, and nobody talks to him. But if you do talk to him, he's like really interesting. That's Brother Theodore. (laughs) Brother Theodore was like this really, really odd guy and a lot of his stories are really apocryphal so you don't know he's kind of like a a Tura Satana type figure you don't know what's (laughs) real and what's not but supposedly and we know that this part's probably true because he had the tattoo he was a survivor of Dachau internment camp and he was a New York Jew who was a comedian but his comedy is super dark as you might expect someone (laughs) having survived the Holocaust in the early days Letterman is was not the person you know now. He was on super late at night and they couldn't get a lot of guests to go on his show because nobody nobody would see you at that time. So they would book these really odd people that they could get who happened to live in New York and he was one of them. And so he would come on there and talk about stuff like like David, you know, uh, uh, you know, he's David Letterman would say you you recently wrote a paper or a book or something about like um, how teenagers are insane, and he's like, yes, they are clinically insane, you know. <laughs> and he would go into uh, a discussion about how the teenage brain is actually the same as a schizophrenic person, or. On another time, he was like, he was an amateur scientist, so he advocated for quadrupedism, that everybody should walk (laughs) around on their hands and feet. Like, and you never knew how serious he was, right? Um, Was that before or after Gollum? Just just (laughs) noting the animation for Gollum in this film relative to to the Jackson version. Um, Letterman went on the air circa 1980, so it's after, but still... Weird guy. And he's not even known as Brother Theodore in some of these. I think he was credited as Brother Theodore on this one. I'm not sure. But on The Return of the King, he's just credited as Theodore. That's it. Theodore. (laughs) Um, He's like Prince, always changing his name. Do yourselves a favor. I don't know for a fact it's on YouTube, but my guess is it's probably out there. Look for any appearances of Brother. He was on Late Night with David Letterman 16 times. All right. So, okay. Anyway, that said, back to the the animated Hobbit. For me, this version of the Hobbit might be the ultimate version of the Hobbit. Granted, there's a lot more material in the Jackson Hobbit movies that we watched. But honestly, given the limitations they were working with, if you were to make it for TV... So cut out anything that couldn't be on TV and were to edit everything out of the Jackson movies, except the same content that was in this and put those two side by side. I think this would be the better film. I always throw out my nitpicks. So here goes. At some point, Gandalf presents Thorin Oakenshield with the key or whatever. Why don't you use the key? And I'm like, Gandalf, you had the damn key the whole time and you didn't tell anyone. I know. He pulls it right out of his sleeve. Like, here. Seriously? <laughs> I did like the multi-plane camera. I think that this version of the song Goblin Town tops the one in Peter Jackson's version. I did not like 
that death wasn't really shown, but you know, for kids on TV, okay, I get it. Mm-hmm. I did not like that Elrond mispronounced Glamdring. And I never liked that. My biggest beef with this is I never liked the way the wood elves were rendered in this. They don't look like elves to me. And they certainly don't look like they're any kin to Elrond and the Rivendell elves. So that always bothered me. Smog's headlight eyes also kind of bug me, but I get why they did it from an animation standpoint. But anyway, I think overall it's great. It's a little bit sappy. It, it is definitely the hippie hobbit. It's more about war than it is about greed. But war being bad is also a theme in Tolkien. It definitely does seem more uh, of a war story. Uh, I'll point out that more of the Dwarven company dies in this version than in the book or in the Jackson version. Seven of the 13 dwarves die, whereas in the book it's only three. So that's kind of an interesting adaptation. They're not showing the violence, but they are implying a far greater death toll than what happened. But then Bilbo just sort of shrugs that off because at that point they're kind of rushing through things towards the end instead of laboriously uh, expanding the end as Jackson does. I think it's a really good version of it as well. I think it's very interesting to notice so much similarity in the use of music. In the book itself, there's a great deal of poetry and singing that's involved in the book. What does Bilbo Baggins hate song is very similar in both versions. The uh, Far Beyond the Misty Mountain song is very similar in both versions. So lots of similarities. Even um, Gollum's vocal performance is somewhat similar to Andy Serkis's. So I thought that was interesting. What I think is really missing in this version, and I understand it was TV for kids, uh, and this does get more at that greed theme that we were talking about with Peter Jackson's version, is there is zero Arkenstone in this one. It's just not there. It's not ever talked about. Bilbo doesn't take it and go to the Elfin Man Camp to present the Arkenstone to them as a negotiating chip because Thorin is so ravenously desiring of the Arkenstone. So there's a little bit with the, oh, the treasure is kind of haunted, but it doesn't really go into that at all. Other than that, you know, there's things, obviously they combine things, they've shortened things up a little bit, all to make it a fairly reasonable TV movie. Uh, I think it's a great adaptation, but I'm really missing the Arkenstone. And I think everybody in the whole world agrees, what the hell were those wood elves? I don't know what they were. Were they half orc? I don't know. They were weird. <laughs> uh, certainly, I think that's the worst part of this version of the movie. As well. And they talked all weird, <laughs> exactly. too. Exactly. So, uh, although um, Thranduil, who's not named here, of course, does have a crown of leaves and berries. So even though it was far more fancy version of leaves and berries in the Jackson version, that's something that carries through as well. But overall, I, I, I really enjoyed it. I think it was very good. Ironically, I didn't see this probably until I was in college or just after. I did not see it when it was originally out, even though I would have been of an age to see it. That's just not something that uh, I was even aware of until much later. Probably my original version was on VHS somewhere in a TV lounge at college or something like that. I really enjoyed it, but I really missed the Arkenstone piece. But that does have to do with are you portraying the greed, Thorin's greed versus just the uh, militaristic, we, we want to go and, and win this thing. Yeah, we're only two years post-Vietnam at the time this came out. Hippie Hobbit, again, once again, it, it's totally the Hippie Hobbit movie. So uh, let's go to our resident Hobbit, Rosie. 
<laughs> very accurate. Very accurate. Again, stop pointing out the hairy feet. Okay, gosh. <laughs> Did you notice that pretty much everybody had an American accent? Whenever you watch medieval or fantasy films or anything like that, they always have an English accent. <laughs> but I, that was just one thing that hit me, and, and I was like, oh, they have American accents. Okay. This doesn't really fit my mental narrative, but I'll go with it. It was a cute film. Definitely very hippy-dippy. Reminds me of everything I grew up with. Yes, I'm old. I don't care. <laughs> I was like three years old when that movie came out. I did not see it until I watched it for the show. I never had a copy of it. I don't remember it being on TV. So if we watched it, I was too little to remember at the time. But that imagery was very reminiscent of a lot of the books and the cartoons that I had consumed when I was little. It was a fun ride. I really enjoyed watching it. This was one of my childhood favorites. I grew up in a very rural area of Pennsylvania, and we had nothing in the town except for a small chapel library and a post office. And our chapel library had maybe 20 video cassettes for kids to check out. And one of the things my brother and I were allowed to do during the summer is walk over to the library and check out Garfield comics and, <laughs> and some videotapes. And The Hobbit was one of the ones that they had. And so I saw this film probably 10 or 15 times as a kid. I read the book first. I was required by my parents to read the book first, but it was interesting rewatching it now, realizing how there are almost two different versions of The Hobbit that exist in my head. There is the childhood version that the emotions of it are tied to the music and the sounds in this film. Like the sound of the piano key that gets plunked every once in a while. And it's like a ding! Kind of like, oh, adventure, like mystery, like something is about to happen. There's like a weird kind of anxiety that the film is constantly evoking of like, oh, danger. And, you know, at a childhood level, it really felt like this film was drawing me into this other world and, and this quest. And I, I felt very compelled by that. And then there's this other version of The Hobbit when I think of it as an adult in terms of these very philosophical kinds of themes around greed and war and what divides us versus what brings us together and friendship on the battlefield and like all these kind of intellectual things that Jackson's version draws out in great detail over three monstrously long films. But watching this animated version, that very basic Campbell hero's journey feeling I think this animated version gets pretty well. It's really hard for me to extract my love for it that's nostalgia from, you know, how good is this actually? I love this movie. I do recognize that it falls short in a lot of ways and it's awful sappy. Yeah, I also think David's critique about the missing Arkenstone piece is a huge narrative problem with the film. Not just because it's missing the greed theme, but also the like, well, you're a burglar, like, go burgle something, um, David Chubbin. Well, uh, it just, uh, <laughs> yeah, Thorin and Bilbo are having their differences, but then there's this great apology as Thorin is dying, and it's sort of like, well, what exactly is he apologizing for? It, it's not entirely clear. I, again, they, they had their differences in their arguments, but uh, without the Arkenstone piece, that apology just seems to come out of almost nowhere. And so that kind of 
bugs me a little bit about it, but uh, not not to the point of making the movie bad. I also wanted to point out, going back to the kind of the war theme, even though they shy away from the violence, not only is the dwarf death toll higher, but that end of the battle battlefield scene showing all the dead is really kind of almost out of tune with the rest of the movie not showing violence and in tune with society dealing with the end of the Vietnam War and, and things of that nature. So I, I think that's a really interesting choice to not shy away from just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dead bodies of enemies and friends lying on the ground. Yeah, I would like to second that. Battle of the Five Armies, the Jackson film, is well done for what it is. Like, it's a technological masterpiece. But I think I personally prefer the dots moving around with the lines and then followed by the imagery of the dead on the battlefield. To me, it just gets to the point so much faster. I don't really need a full two and a half hour long war film with the battle sequences. It just doesn't do it for me. And I realized watching this, I was very happy with the dots and then that image afterwards. I don't know. Dwarves on goats, though. Dwarves on goats. <laughs> <laughs> like, that is genius right there. All right, fair enough. I'll give you dwarves on goats. Okay. You guys hungry? Always. Yeah. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Delicious things to eat. The popcorn can't be beat. The sparkling drinks are just dandy. The chocolate bars and the candy. So let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. I'm the resident hobbit. I'm always hungry. Well, that's funny you should say that because I was thinking of doing uh, something called Rosie's Pies for this one. <laughs> Rosie, of course, is Samwise's wife. They don't get married until after the events of the Return of the King, but they were sweethearts before he left the Shire. So, yes, Rosie is, in fact, a Hobbit name, as we knew. But we are about to embark on the Lord of the Rings animated film, which is the longest of the pieces we're going to be talking about today. So again, it's time for a full meal. And following our Hobbit tradition, the next meal in line is luncheon. So for this one, I went to the Middle Earth Foodie blog, and I will put a link in the show notes. It's middleearthfoodie.wordpress.com. That's the main blog, but most of their recipes are actually linked off of it on another site. They have a database of their recipes. So we've done beans on toast and mushroom meat pies. And the recipe here for Rosie's pie was a mushroom and meat pie and figured we've done that already. So what I wanted to do instead was another classic Victorian British dish with uh, some medieval nostalgia thrown in there Yorkshire pudding mm -hmm. so a good Yorkshire pudding and again much like we said with pies I'm going to say the same thing with pudding you got to think savory a savory pudding here now that may blow some people's minds but yes these were more savory on the uh, Middle Earth foodie blog they dropped the York and just call it the Shire pudding <laughs> 
I don't mean to diss Yorkshire. We will talk more about Yorkshire in a future episode because it's a great city with medieval ruins. It's got Roman ruins and Norman ruins and Anglo-Saxon Viking ruins. And north of town are these creepy moors. And if you go beyond that, there's what's called Whitby, where the biggest goth fest in the world happens, Whitby Goth Weekend. Whitby Abbey is a ruined abbey there. It's just great. We'll talk about it when we do horror. But for the purposes of this, it's just called the Shire Pudding. Now, you mix together one cup of milk, two eggs, one cup of flour, and a teaspoon salt in a blender. I consulted another website on the history of Yorkshire puddings called historic-uk.com. According to their recipe for Yorkshire pudding, which is a little more detailed, you want that to have the consistency of heavy cream when you mix all that together. According to the Middle Earth Foodie blog, they just put it in a blender. Okay, sounds good. I have no problem using modern conveniences to make this stuff. Put three tablespoons of hot beef or lamb drippings in a nine-inch glass pie plate. Pour the batter into the middle of the drippings. Bake in a preheated 425-degree oven for 15 minutes. Reduce the heat 150 degrees and continue baking until the pudding is puffy and brown. But originally, this kind of recipe was called dripping pudding because it's made from the meat drippings. So I'm going to give you guys a head start on dinner. Remember, we got more meals in between now and then, but you want to get a head start on that and say instead to do this the traditional way. Put it in the oven, but on the rack above it, roast mutton for the trolls. <laughs> Which is also from the medieval foodie blog. You leave the fat on a leg of mutton and rub it with a clove of garlic. You put that right on the oven rack and roast for 25 minutes per pound in a 350 degree oven. And you serve that with the mint jelly and and shire pudding. But the reason you put that right on the rack is you put the pudding underneath it. And instead of putting the drippings in the pan ahead of time, you just let the drippings fall onto the pudding. That's how it traditionally would have been made, although over a fire. So you might have to do some experimenting, but I would roast per the instructions for the mutton. And then if the pudding isn't puffy yet, you can pull out your hank of mutton and turn up the heat to 425 for the last 15 minutes. That's what I would do. Again, I'll put the recipe in the show notes. Then you can stick that leg of mutton in the fridge for when we get to dinner, which will be later on in another podcast. There you go. Shire pudding, aka Yorkshire pudding. There are tons of different recipes on this. Every boys' school in the UK has their own recipe for this thing. You can watch it. I think Great British Baking Show devoted a whole episode to Yorkshire puddings. There we go. That is my recommendation. I'm sure I have now sickened my Americans with meat pudding, <laughs> meat pies, and beans on toast for breakfast. But hey, UK fans, give me some love here. <laughs> I'm willing to try it, but I'm not willing to make it because that sounds like a huge mess to clean up. And I just don't like big messes like that. I line everything with foil when I cook. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't have a dishwasher at my house, so I have to. I have a good excuse. That's, that's why you have the pudding underneath it, so you don't have to clean up so much. Yeah, <laughs> but then there's scraping the, the rack, and I just, mm -mm, nah, I'm good. <laughs> well, you could do it in your backyard over the Weber grill. 
you know? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, Weather girl would work. Ooh. Just spray the rack with Pam first. It'll come right off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the problem with that is you get Pam then in your... In the Yorkshire pudding. Well, yeah. Well, maybe just butter. Good old-fashioned butter. Yeah. Okay, so let's get a background to 1978. It was the year that Space Invaders was released, which, of course, caused worldwide video game addiction epidemic that still <laughs> has not ended to this day. Gaming has just become a major thing in American culture and around the world. We could thank Space Invaders for that, which I absolutely love. Gold reached $200 an ounce. The uh, first test tube baby was born. Jim Jones made about 900 people drink the Kool-Aid. Sweden discovered that aerosol killed the ozone layer. David Berkowitz, the son of Sam, was convicted of murder in New York City. The U.S. dollar plunged, but it was a great year for movies. We had Grease, Close Encounters, Animal House, Star Wars, A New Hope, The Deer Hunter, noteworthy horror movies, Jaws 2 and Halloween were both released as well. And as far as the Oscars go, Annie Hall, I mean, let's talk about the iconic look of Annie Hall. That was like a fashion icon movie, and that look just carried on for decades to come. Women have been rocking that look ever since. Close Encounters and Star Wars won a lot of Oscars for production. And then also The Goodbye Girl was a popular movie uh, with the Oscars that year as well. Just to set the tone for what kind of film this is, the key bit of trivia about Bakshi is that he is... No, am I not allowed to start here? You're going to say rotoscoping. No, no, oh. we're not going to start there. Oh, okay. oh no. Oh, I... No, we're going to go... Oh, yeah. No, we'll talk about rotoscoping. Fritz the but cat? first, Fritz the cat. <laughs> I knew it. It is extremely important that everyone know before we talk about this film that Bakshi's other claim to fame is Fritz the Cat, which was released in 1972. It was based on a comic strip by Robert Crumb and was the first animated film to receive an X rating from the MPAA <laughs> and is still considered the most successful independent animated feature of all time. So just while we're talking about the Bakshi animated version of Lord of the Rings, please also keep Fritz the Cat in your mind. See, this is the mirror image of Meet the Females. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> and I have an entire sidebar I want to talk about Bakshi, but we'll do that after we get through the production notes. Okay, so keep that in your mind. Now I also want you to add in that the screenplay for this film was written by Peter S. Beagle, again, of Last Unicorn fame. He was the author of the novel version of Last Unicorn. So there's, there's a lot of ties in between those two stories here. The original screenplay actually was written by a guy named Borman, who originally thought of the Lord of the Rings adaptation as a live action film encompassing the whole trilogy. Just try to imagine if Peter Jackson had tried to squish all three films into one feature and what a mess that might have been. Borman's script was also kind of a mess, so they bought the script for $3 million just so they could get the rights to make the film and then threw the entire thing out. Before production started, Bakshi met with Tolkien's daughter Priscilla to discuss how the film would be made. She showed him the room where her father did all the writing, and Bakshi said that he promised to Tolkien's daughter that he was going to be pure to the book. 
We'll find out later in our reactions whether he kept that promise. <laughs> Originally, this film adaptation was supposed to be part one of two. So the first part was going to cover Fellowship of the Ring and half of Two Towers. And then the second part would pick up mid Two Towers and cover through to the end of the trilogy. But the first part was kind of a disaster in the making and was clearly not going to merit a sequel. So they ended up having to wrap up part one, which was originally supposed to end at a cliffhanger. It was supposed to end with Frodo and Sam being led to Shalab by Gollum. And this like, oh no, you know, like Gollum's about to take him into this dangerous place. Like what's going to happen next? But when it became clear there was going to be no part two, they decided to end it with the Battle of Helm's Deep instead to give it a sort of sense of conclusion at the end of this chapter. Other interesting trivia related to casting, Bakshi was approached by Mick Jagger, who wanted to play Frodo. (laughs) Again, keep that in your mind, along with Fritz the Cat in The Last Unicorn. Also, Mick Jagger as Frodo almost happened. Bakshi would later go on to do the music video for the Rolling Stones' Harlem Shuffle. So Jagger was a fan. Other noticeable almost casting was David Carradine, who wanted to play Aragorn and even suggested that it be a live action film. And Bakshi said, no, that'll never work. It has to be animation. And we can talk further about Bakshi and Peter Jackson's fraught relationship with some comments back and forth. Bakshi was really not a fan of Jackson's version and thought that it totally missed the spirit of Lord of the Rings and, you know, continued to insist that every time Jackson said that he was inspired by Bakshi's version and even borrowed some scenes seemingly shot for shot, Bakshi continued to insist that Jackson was just saying that to be nice and didn't actually like his film. We'll debate whether we think there's a connection there. Other casting notes, Anthony Daniels as Legolas and John Hurt, who ended up taking the role of Aragorn. Aragorn here animated almost like a Native American kind of like very, very weird animation choices for Aragorn. Also, did no one in this film wear pants? And knowing that it's John Hurt as that character made it all the more weird. Speaking of the animation... Tim Burton actually helped work on this film. So, you know, keep that. Fritz the Cat, Last Unicorn, Mick Jagger, and Tim Burton all, <laughs> all connected in, to this project. And the, the only other thing we have to talk about, of course, is the rotoscoping, which started off as a choice they were making at the beginning of the film to do the past sequence, the prologue, and... Bakshi liked the look of it so much that he decided to carry it through the entire film, particularly for the orcs and the evil characters. Good guys are consistently animated, but the rotoscoping just snowballs and you get more and more of it as the film goes on. One cool bit of trivia, during one of the large orc scenes, Bakshi secretly got footage of the actors in orc costumes moving toward a craft service table and used the footage in the film. (laughs) Awesome. Budget was somewhere in the ballpark of $4 million to $12 million, which is a pretty big range. No one was quite clear how much was spent on this film. 
but it grossed $30.5 million in the United States and Canada. So despite the fact that I'm sure we'll get into a lot of the film's flaws, it was a commercial success by and large, even though it was universally panned by critics. We need to explain what rotoscoping is because there may be some people who are unfamiliar. Rotoscoping involved actually hand painting onto the actual film frame by frame. It's a hugely tedious process, possibly even more tedious than the Harryhausen like stop motion animation where like you move something a frame and then you you shoot one frame of film. This is even more tedious than that. So before computers, nowadays they can like slap that look on and and you know have the computer do all the math behind it. But in those days, they had to take the film print and like using a magnifying glass and a paintbrush paint that stuff frame by frame onto the freaking film. That's dedication. That's why, you know, this movie took so long. Notable examples of rotoscoping. Snow White was one of the original masterclasses in rotoscoping. The way you can tell something has been rotoscoped is that the human beings move and act like real human beings. And especially in this film, where some of the characters are rotoscoped and some aren't, you can tell that Frodo and the Hobbits are animated all the time, like hand-drawn, no rotoscoping. And then especially in the tavern scene, all of the tavern folk who are celebrating and hanging out, they're clearly real people and that their faces have been traced and painted in, but the features are all too human. Some interesting design choices there with the rotoscoping. It was kind of the motion capture of its day. I mean, there's there's some parts of the battle scenes where they start as animated and they go into rotoscope for the battle and they come back out. Most of the time you can tell nowadays looking at it, back then it might have been a little bit harder. There are some places where it's very well done, where he slips it in really briefly. Yeah, I think overall what surprised me is that he seemed so adamant about the film needing to be animated, and yet so much of it felt like a live-action film, just with weird colors. It was my understanding that I might be completely wrong, but even the main character stuff that looks more animated were filmed live-action. They, they had actors filming that live-action, and then they basically redid everything in animation. But there are, there are images of like Gandalf and Strider and Boromir filming the scenes that would later get animated over in those more classic animated scenes as well. Yeah, that cell animation technique, copying something that's already been filmed, is something they borrowed from Disney. Disney started doing that way back in the beginning. It really helps create a more natural look for the characters. Well, and a Disney animator was involved in the project as well, Dale Bayer. So I'm sure he brought some of that intel. It's hard to imagine a better screenplay for a two-hour half of Lord of the Rings version. I, I mean, there are some things that get cut out, like Tom Bombadil, as always. There are some things that get combined, you know, simplified. But really, if I was to set out to do a two-hour half of Lord of the Rings product, I would start with the screenplay. Now, I might turn the screen off and just listen to it. 
<laughs> but but I, I really think Peter S. Spiegel did a, a really good job condensing the story down and still making it uh, enjoyable, still hitting the most important parts. In addition to his uh, Last Unicorn, one of my Tolkien books that I purchased as a teenager actually has an introduction by Peter S. Beagle in it. So he's somebody that was all about Tolkien growing up himself, and to have him write this screenplay, I think it's a, a really strong effort in, in that part. Yeah, he was quite distinguished in the fantasy world. He won, I think, the World Fantasy Award a couple of times. He's written more than one fantasy book. I really like A Fine and Private Place, which was his first book, because it's kind of gothy. But anyway, um, yeah, go ahead. You know, in terms of the adaptation, in terms of the screenplay, in terms of how they tell the story in this version, I think it's actually quite successful as long as you're not looking at the screen. <laughs> <laughs> where where maybe things get a little bit wacky and unusual. In many ways, it's more faithful even than the expanded Jackson versions. For instance, one of Tolkien's hang-ups with not wanting a film version made of Lord of the Rings was he was afraid that people would condense the time, which is something that Jackson does. But here they say this many winters and falls and years have passed by. So the time isn't condensed here. And that's something that Tolkien would actually prefer this version over Jackson's version, I think. So really, in terms of the storyline, this is a pretty good adaptation. John Borman originally was going to make this. And judging by what he did with Excalibur, which is super condensed... I think that it would have come out a lot more condensed. Bakshi, when he convinced Priscilla to let him do it, he showed her Wizards, which if you haven't seen Wizards, it's very Tolkien-esque and very much an anti-war film. It's another, you know, hippie 70s, but much more adult because it was made by Bakshi. It takes place in a post-Holocaust future, but it has Wizards. So it's got sci-fi elements as well as fantasy elements. It's a bit ponderous, but it's worth checking out. It's kind of, in a lot of ways, Bakshi's rough draft. I loved it. Yeah, I grew up being an art kid. I've always loved art. I've always loved creative things. I've always loved creative films. So actually, out of the three animated films, this is the one that held my attention the most because I kept watching for the changes in production and to see how they kind of utilize those things for different scenes and if they if they use it to their advantage to set the mood or set the tone for whatever was coming in the film. So it was really fascinating to watch, especially the animation and realizing that they were rotoscoping, which is a really fascinating technique. And again, I watched it with fresh eyes. I'd never seen it before. I really enjoyed the animation, and it kind of reminded me a lot of Star Wars, especially with the orcs in the film. It's very 70s, bringing back that whole nostalgia of 70s animation and the music and the sound effects, too. Um, that whole sound effects with the ring, every time he puts the ring on, I love that as well. <laughs> you know, they use that symbol for magic and weird scene changes and everything like that. That sound was just so common for so many things in the 70s. And every time I hear it, I have to giggle a little bit because it's just, it just brings back too many memories. <laughs> 